Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm Ian, and welcome once again to David Berman Week, the first week of the new year, when we press pause on whatever our current fixation is at that time and return to the Silver Jews catalog in remembrance of David Cloud Berman, born January 4th, 1967. Got a great first episode of the week for you today. Me and Craig Finn. You know him. You love him. The Hold Steady. Our label mate on Talk House with and That's How I Remember It. This podcast and, of course, you know, just Craig Finn music in general. We're rapping about Starlight Walker. We did the last Jews record last year. We're doing the first one here this year and got another great conversation coming up later this week. Bit of a different angle on this whole subject, but you'll see when we get there. For now, here's Greg. Come on in my kitchen My friend Take it easy My friend Have a seat my friends, don't you know that I never want this minute to end? And then it ends. Crooked Rain, I was looking back in preparation for this talk about Starlight Walker, and I was sort of trying to place it both in, um, trying to place it in both historical musical historical and then personal um context of how it entered my life and um you know i was, I was looking back in crooked rain <clears throat> the pavement record came out february 94 according to wikipedia i remember it later but mm. um i sort of remember it being spring already but you know memory's imperfect <laughs> um and but because shortly after it came out uh in my memory at any rate in may of 94 <laughs> I went, uh, I was so into that record. I was into pavement in general, pretty deep. And I went on, uh, I went on a little road trip. I went to, um, well, I saw him at first Avenue in Minneapolis and then they went down to Chicago and I followed him there and I saw him at the Metro in Chicago. And then I went on and, um, on the eve of the Kentucky Derby in Louisville, they played, uh, in 94. And I, I went to that and stayed at the rocket house down in Louisville, which is, kind of a legendary indie rock uh house with with like louisville bands and people that played there and stayed there and so you you know i i sort of felt like that was sort of pinnacle indie rock um for me of course i was i was one year out of college i'd graduated um 1993 this you know uh, june of 93 or whatever may of 93 and after a summer in boston i moved back to minneapolis so um, in October twenty, in October ninety four, when when Starlight Walker came out, I was a year out of school, a year into living in Minneapolis. I lived on Colfax Avenue in this house with these indie rock guys. You know, there's a record label run out of there, and uh, we listened to a lot of records and stuff. Um, but but because of that sort of that, that's a that was a re, when I look back at a very scary age for me because 
I was out of college and I was a little bit directionless. You know, sure. I got like an office job. I was trying to start my band, Lifter Puller, but it, you know, it was, it wasn't like it wasn't uh, the world wasn't immediately opening up to me, <laughs> and um, uh, and so that that you know the, the inclusion of this song, advice to the graduate, mm. always really connected. And we'll we'll talk about that later. But um, so on a personal note, the other thing that around that time as I met these two guys, um, Eric Forrest and Steve Healy. And they had, they were, um, guys that had come from the East coast with a, with back to the twin cities with a guy named Paul Dickinson. And they had a band called Francis gum and the cool, you know, related to this story, Eric and Steve Healy, if I'm correct, they both went to the University of Virginia. I know that much. I believe they went there with Dave Berman. Aha. Um, okay. They certainly went there with Steve Malcolmus, etc. They also went to the University of Massachusetts MFA program, both of them. Okay. Where they wow. also both went with David Berman. So they would talk. I and you know, being a pavement um, wild enthusiast at the time, I would kind of prep the, you know pressure them for details about Malcolmus and sure. pavement stuff. <laughs> and they would always talk about this guy, David Berman, in reverent tones, you know, um, his writing and, uh, you know, kind of his connection to the thing. And he was, he was like a name that loomed large when they talk about him. And so I was very interested in that. And, you know, I got the, those, they had those first, I think, two Silver Jews, like, EP seven inches that Arizona record pretty, and um, yeah uh, dime map of the, the reef. reef yeah yeah and and those were kind of noisy and like you know a little bit impenetrable um, a little shambolic yeah and you know I I remember reading a review at the time um, that um, that that Silver Jews pavements uh, sort of uh, relationship to each other was was that that resembled Parliament and Funkadelic, with one being the more exper- <laughs> uh, experimental. Uh, I see that. Uh, you know, uh, members in a more experimental setting. Um, but I was also like really um, immersed in the indie rock of the time. I, mm-hmm. Obviously, I just out of college. In college, I'd kinda, I kind of I knew a woman, uh, Suzanne McCarthy, now Dowers, that had a booking agent, a booking agency called. She started from her dorm room, and she was booking some really hip indie bands like um, Sebado and the Grifters and sure. Royal Trucks and uh, Rodance, um, you know, a bunch of cool stuff. And um, so I was like, I, and I especially kind of became friends with the, with the band the Grifters, and I I I think you know that and that kind of stuff was really happening. Um, and a lot of those, the Grifters made records at Easley Studios in Memphis. And that's where this record was made, Starlight mm. Walker. And so, I, and I feel like there was, a, there was a bunch of indie rock records being made at that place. So it was kind of a hip destination at the, at the time. Um, so that, that was kind of interesting to me as, as, I, as I looked around. And I, you know, I, 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 this record really spoke to me. The lyrics, um, you know, were obviously next level. And, um, but I, I, and I, I remember in the, in the years following, um, there was a magazine, oh, it's still around the baffler. Um, sure, yeah. and they would, they would, they would, they had printed some of stuff, um, some poems by David Berman. One in particular, I remember was the cantos for James Michener, which is worth looking up if anyone doesn't, hasn't seen it. It's just amazing work. And I remember like 
buying the baffler and and this is probably not cool but photocopying it at my job to send to friends <laughs> uh just because i thought it was so moving um, legging the baffler and, yeah so unique you know <laughs> just the poem um so that was kind of my relationship and how it how it uh entered my life um at, you know in october 94 and where i was at and and sort of how when i think about it how you know how i experienced it at that time and uh, the one thing overall I want to say is I remember in 94 thinking this was very Americana. Mm. Like, um, because what I, the other things I was listening to were like, you know, um, not, and pavement only had their first two records out. And, um, you know, indie rock was still, you know, I was still Sonic youth and dinosaur and super chunk and things that were like, I, there was less laid back maybe and less, um, certainly less Americana or like, you know, less, um, than, than what maybe, you know, I feel like that stuff has come more in vogue than it was in 94. Sure. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the stuff I was listening to was noisy archers of loaf, you know, of course. and, and then this came out and it was sort of simple and pure. Yeah. I think that there's, um, like a, there's a, a decided like lack of intention to be cool on this record. Yeah. I think right, like and and uh, and that's not to say that you know uh, a dinosaur junior record or a seven o record or whatever like those guys are trying to be cool, right? But it, it is it is cool music. It was cool. It still is cool. It's always been cool. And David, you know, um, I, I think to his credit has always kind of and and to his detriment, honestly, and on a personal level, it seems. Uh, was always kind of at a remove from you know what was what was cool, what was hip, what was on vogue at any given time, and that led to just an absolutely incredible fucking series of releases on his part over the years. Um, but at the same time, you know, kind of kept him, and it seemed like he was kind of at arm's length, you know, kind of at a yeah. distance from whatever was happening in the zeitgeist at any given moment. And he would say that too when you heard him in interviews or whatever. He would say like, "I can't really engage with this." And there's something about like, I mean, all of his work, but this is, you know, I guess this is the first big work I interacted with, given that I found the other two EPs like a little hard, to, hard to uh, break through. They are. Um, <laughs> That's uh, a statement of fact. It launched like kind of a great, you know, the, the rest of his career, including the poetry of sort of a, an interest in America, you know, and, yeah. and, and American things, American water. Well, you know, I mean, um, and he captures an America, like in a lot of his references, I find, uh, seven, I think of the seventies, like, like those, you know, I was born in 71. Mm -hmm. So sort of in a formative memories of men, like, yeah, in cocktail bars and uh, <laughs> and the way the way things uh, I don't know the way some of this way that things used to be or something like that you know uh, um, with a little I don't know the, the, he captures some some sort of light that that I remember um, that's kind of that that's hard to put into words but I, I always feel like he's living in that in that uh, in my youth. Yeah, yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, he came obviously from Texas and then uh, went to University of Virginia where he met Malcolmus and, and Nastanovich. And then, he, you know, he goes to New York and uh, that's where Silverjuice starts to like become, you know, kind of a band at that time. And then obviously heads back down to, to Memphis to cut this record. But, you know, he, he just, he kind of came from a different place. So, you know, it was a bit of a uh, an outsider 
Um, and so that that lent him a, a different kind of angle, I think, on what he was working at and what was going on around him, even as he was, you know, in that, you know, cool New York indie rock scene circa 1992, three or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever felt the same, like a similar kind of, um, uh, outsider tendency is maybe the wrong word, but, you know, hailing from the middle of the country, right? Not a yeah. Los Angeles, New York native. It seems like maybe that inculcates something similar in you. Yeah, definitely. And also maybe, um, mm, even though I am certainly a rock and roll enthusiast that pursues <laughs> it, um, vigorously, not always f- feeling like I have one. Uh, sometimes one foot in sort of the straight world um, and, 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 and just sort of an interest in <clears throat> whatever it is, baseball or um, being able to speak to people that aren't, <laughs> that aren't in rock bands, things <laughs> like that, you know, uh, um, you having, can pass having, in the, in the norm, in the world of normies and having friends in, in the straight world, maybe is one way of saying it, having a fair amount of friends, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that, that, that seems like, and, and just sort of being interested in, in uh, either like, uh, traditional Americanism or even, you know, some parts of Catholicism, uh, are, are the times I find, uh, maybe feeling an outsider. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that was, uh, again, to uh, bring back to David, like, that's one thing that I always admired so much about him. I'm saying this as a huge baseball and basketball fan myself, um, used to be more into football, but David was like a huge football fan. Like, he was a huge <laughs> Tennessee Titans fan. He loves Steve McNair, like the yeah. quarterback for the Titans from, yeah. you know, the early 2000s. And that was just like such a, there's such a purity and like an, a, a, a realness to that kind of quality, you know, uh, defiantly uncool, like in the fucking t- Tennessee Titans of all things. But like, he, he, he was who he was. When I was talking about the um, men in cocktail bars, a better way of saying it might be um, a friend of mine was pointing out that like a, a, a f- an old NFL photo and the men who were in the audience were dressed pretty well. And he was like, you know, that's when they were men, when you like looked nice and went to see the Dallas Cowboys, you know, <laughs> you put on a suit and a hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, yeah. And I'm like, man, that is a little bit like there's something uh, I think of the day of the football that David Berman loved maybe to be look like that in my mind. Analogous anyways. Yeah. And totally. you know what you bring up though, also the Steve McNair, I mean, I, I, I never knew him, but I remember learning that he had moved to Nashville and that was at a time when not a lot of people were moving to Nashville. Right. It felt like indie rock people, you know? Um, So I always thought that was curious and cool. Moving to Nashville. Yeah. 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 Yeah, At at that time. At that time. Exactly. Because Nashville, I think is one of the, like the, the, if if you're not going to be in like Los Angeles or New York or like Philly, basically like Nashville is, is the center of a world at this point, but he was there. 20, 25 years before. Absolutely. It, was not, it would not be surprising now in a way that it was then. Yeah. Uh, well, should we, um, I mean, should we talk, talk a little yeah. bit about the record itself, Starlight Walker? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, the one thing that I, well, I, the overall, yeah, one thing I was thinking is, and we'll get to them, I guess, but uh, the, the fact that there's two instrumentals on mm-hmm. a David Berman record is funny. I know, right? In, 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 in some sort of cosmic joke. 
it is it is pretty wild. I, I've always kind of thought of that in like in the context of Bob, right? Um, like on Nashville Skyline, the second song, Nashville Skyline Rag. You know, mm-hmm. coincidentally enough, Nashville is such a like a basic piece of music, right? It's like barely two minutes. I don't even think it's yeah. two minutes long, and it's just like a. It's literally what it is. It's a rag. It's you know just a bunch yeah. of players in a room fiddling around on acoustic guitars and banjos and stuff. But like the significance of Bob Dylan putting an instrumental song at track two on his own record after duetting with Johnny Cash, you know, on the first song on that record, like that's such a statement, right? That the, the, the poet of the gener of, of a generation, um, uh, would, would say, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm making an instrumental song here and it's going to be right at the top of my album. The placement, the fact that it exists, like that says so much about it. Um, even without there being any, you know, words, obviously, because it's an yeah. instrumental. You know, a lot of accolades were ahead for these people. Um, but going back to 1994, you know, I, as I said, David Berman loomed large in the people who knew him already, but a lot of people didn't. And because of that, you know, there is sort of this other, like, sort of, I don't know, post-collegiate kind of vibe. Sure. To, you know, I mean, like, like some of this, they're, they're fooling around sometimes, you know, fooling around. That's what I find so funny about it is like, it, um, you know, it, it's a germinal record, right? It, it's the first studio, yeah. you know, the first formal LP. Um, and it points the way to so much of what's going to come in the future, uh, I think. But at the same time, there are like six other different fucking bands or sounds or ideas <laughs> that exist within Starlight Walker that almost get completely abandoned. Like by the time you get to the second record, Natural Bridge. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the stuff that you're talking about, a lot of it is the stuff that most resembles the indie rock of that time. It's the closest to pavement. Yeah. 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 And yeah, etc. Um, well, speaking of close to pavement, you know, we've got, uh, uh <laughs> I've always loved this concept here too, starting the first record, uh, right again, first full yeah. LP with introduction two, <laughs> not introduction one, uh, <laughs> but introduction two, which is a, uh, uh, just barely one minute long song sketch between David and Steven. Um, but I think that's a really good, does a really good job, like setting the, setting the mood, setting the template for, for what you're about to get on the rest of this record. Yeah. I mean, introduction, the introduction song is, is, you know, I mean like the history of rock and roll and punk rock too, like, you know, <laughs> minor threat, minor threat, etc. And, or just sort of saying like, or hello there by cheap trick or something, you know, a call to arms. I, I love it. Um, man, my own band sort of, uh, the first song on our first record, it sort of is sort of an introduction song. I like the idea of a, a call to arms and a statement of purpose, but you know, just sort of welcome you in, welcome you in. You feel like they're lifting a curtain a little bit, and it's it's so simple. But there, that that kind of those double vocals on it are are really like kind of sleepy and a little bit dopey, you know. Totally, um, totally. And they sound so. And here's maybe the like the difference for me coming to the Jews, you know, years down the line, like Starlight Walker was not the first Mm -hmm. Silver Jews record that I listened. It was maybe one of the last Silver Jews records that I listened to. You know, people these days start with um, American Water and then uh, Bright Flight or Lookout Mountain or, you know, Mm -hmm. the Purple Mountains record, obviously. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, but, but because, you know, I'm coming to this kind of after the fact and after having such strong connotations with the rest of the Jews catalog, with the pavement catalog, you know, like mm-hmm. hearing 20 something David Berman and 20 something Stephen Malcolm is there, right? Like coming through the speakers to it's like 
So like, holy shit, these are titans that walk the earth now or walk yeah. the earth at one point. But here they are like when they were just baby face kids. And that's a beaut- That's a really, I mean, it's 1994 <laughs> was a long time ago now. Yeah. And uh, um, I just went to my 30th college reunion. So that was like you know, <laughs> the year following this. So it's 29 years ago. Um, and, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's. Uh, all that's happened after this is sort of wild to consider, and that that you know we're everyone's still talking about Starlight Walker, some of which was obviously come up with on the spot, or you know, et cetera, as we as we talked about. Yeah, but the yeah. introduction, the introductions, a welcome, you know, lifting the curtain and welcoming you in. It's kind of wonderful. Great way to you know, great way to start a record. Low key, come. Hello, my friends, come in, have a seat. That's, that's yeah. literally what it's doing for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, I mean, Trains Across the Sea is like one of the, I think one of the great Silver Juice songs of all of the Silver Juice songs, and it's just served up to you right here, you know, track two. It's been evening all day long. It's been evening all day long. And how can something so old be so I read that it was the first song he wrote. Like, really? Like the first quote-unquote real song he wrote. Um, wow, I didn't realize that. So it's kind of, I mean, it's the first real song sort of on this record, if you don't, the I guess the instrumentals, are, or the introduction's a, a real song. But this is, uh, you know, the first one that kind of hits you with that, with that, all the, all of his power. And uh, you know what I was talking about? Like, again, that 70s kind of thing that references, like, when he says, please try Carlton, that was Carlton Cigarettes, and that was their slogan that you'd always see in the magazines. Carlton please try Carlton Cigarettes. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a brand of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, so that's like the kind of thing, like, like I, I wouldn't have thought of Carlton Cigarettes. I haven't seen them in, uh, but, uh, you know, that long. But, but, it, it, but it, there was, there would, it would be a simple ad and it would say, please try Carlton. I think, I'm pretty sure, I'm looking for it now online and, it's not coming up quickly, but I'm pretty sure that was their ad. Um, let me see. Please try Carlton. Oh, yeah. Sure. Enough. Yeah. I just Googled Cigar- Carlton cigarettes. Please try Carlton. Yeah. They got big, huge, like, banner. <laughs> if you yeah. smoke, please try Carlton. <laughs> yeah. Please try Carlton. Yeah. That's 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 just him reading a 70s, 80s billboard, you know? That's wild. Um, and, and Trains Across the Sea is 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 kind of funny in, in, in when you look at it in paper, too, because obviously a train does not go over the sea but it's also could mean trains in europe etc but uh, sure so i like the, the the i mean it seems like everything he does is so intentional and so i think i think that that's sort of meant to confuse a little bit absolutely yeah i mean you know uh, he um he was never one preoccupied with making perfect literal sense in each right. and every line in each and every song. And that's, I think, honestly, what makes like the Purple Mountains record so remarkable at the end of it, because he not not to say that he's being totally literal on that record, but he does, you know, um, uh, strip out a lot of the more esoteric, you know, might, might be the wrong word, but uh, high minded, you know, poetic phrases like trains across the sea, which could mean anything. When you examine other artists' work, do you feel that to be a natural progression? I mean, getting more direct seems like something people might be more interested in as they age. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that, well, it's, it's, 
it depends on the artist, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ones that we've spent, you know, years and years talking about at this point, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, um, they couldn't help but become more direct in their old age because they had been, you know, so far in another direction in their younger age. Uh, sure. and, and you kind of go up and down. You know, there, there are later records from both of them where they kind of move back in the direction of mystifying things and, and putting people at arm's, arm's distance. Um, but, uh, but with someone like David who only made, you know, the six Silver Jews records and Purple Mountains, plus a couple EPs here and there, I, it really did kind of seem like a, a natural kind of progression, right? Like it, yeah. it couldn't help but be like this. Um, and maybe that has more to do with who he was as an individual, you know, someone who was an outsider who didn't feel comfortable, um, you know, in his own self coming from where he came from, you know, obviously his dad was a major, you know, uh, hang up for him. Um, and so getting to the point later in life where people loved him and he recognized that people loved him and he wanted to communicate with them. Um, I don't know. It, 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 it makes sense. I think looking back at it now, but maybe that's just hindsight's 2020, you know? Yeah. You know, I think that, that, and I think it makes sense in general, as a as a person progresses in age, and and to want to attach some more more simplicity rather than less, different vectors of simplicity too, right? Like I think the music on this record is is about as simple and mm-hmm. honestly, like I don't want to call it like pedestrian indie rock or whatever, but like it. Um, if anything, I feel like Starlight Walker fits in closer to a Sebado record or a pavement mm-hmm. record or something from what was happening at this moment in time, as different as it was at that moment, right? Like by the time you get to Bright Flight, um, which is just a full on, just beautiful sounding country yeah. rock record, right? Like that is as different, like compare that to Wowie Zowie or something. Those are two different genres, yeah. basically, at that point. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so w- I think where the music might have been a little simpler and less conceived of a little more tossed off and, and just kind of whatever happened to come out in the studio. Um, I think the, uh, uh, the lyrics, he was kind of on a, the opposite journey as a lyricist, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you find yourself, sense. you know, uh, more, uh, drawn to directness and simplicity and straightforward communication as, as you are entering your what fucking like third decade as a, yeah. as a professional songwriter? <laughs> I, I, I do in my own work and, and certainly it's a thing I've come to really appreciate. You know, when you hear a Tom Petty song or a Lucinda Williams song and you just say, Oh, they just told it to me, you yeah. know, like they, they, they didn't code it. They didn't, um, they didn't, you know, make it uh, unnecessarily clever or fancy or tricky. They told it to me in a way that um, went straight, you know, inside and, 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 and moved me. And I think that, yeah, as, as I get older, I admire that more and hopefully, hopefully I'm bringing that to my own work, but at very least I admire it. <laughs> and I think part of that, I, I don't want to speak for you. I, you know, you, I'll, I'll let you speak for you. This is a podcast after all, but for David, at least, you know, it, I think there was an element of like confidence um, uh, there that helped him get to that point uh, in the long run, you know, feeling confident in his own work, his own 
practice as a poet. And, you know, when he got out on the road and started playing rock songs, you know, in 2005, six around Tanglewood numbers, uh, just seeing that there were people out there that loved him and knew all these fucking words and wanted to like be in a space with him and commune, you know, at the holy altar of a rock show. Um, I think that, that experience seems to have um, given him a bit of a, a confidence boost, right? Uh, just realizing that there have been people out, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out there listening all along. Because um, that is something that's interesting about this. The Jews never toured. Like, David was petrified of touring um, and refused to do it up until, you know, he went out in 2005 um, and they did, a, you know, two, three years of, of shows there towards the end of Silver Jews. And that was it. Um, and rock and roll is such a, you know, experience. I don't need to tell you this. It's so experiential when you get in a room and you're on stage yeah. and you've got all these people around you and you've got your bandmates surrounding you and everyone is tuned in and locked in. Like it, that feels like such an essential component of this entire fucking thing. And that was just absent for him for basically his entire career as a musician. One thing I wonder, and, and I don't have the answer to this, is was there, prior to that touring, was there Silver Juice shows? Like, were, did they do like a Drag City showcase at some point or anything like that? Like, did they ever? So I remember there was like a big Drag City show at maybe like CMJ or some, one in Chicago or something. I wonder if they might have done that um, or done something for that. But that's, that's something I don't know. I honestly think, like, I'm looking up on, on set list right now, right, which, mm -hmm. take that with a grain of salt, um, they have got, there's two shows listed in 1993, um, okay. one at Lounge Axe in Chicago, one at Irving Plaza in New York, uh, there's one show at a CMJ showcase in 1997, um, and then there's one show at the Echo Lounge in Atlanta in 2001, and that's... Wow it until 2006 when they played you know 30 something shows and went on an actual tour yeah. um so i'm yeah. you know there may well have been a couple instances here and there uh in in between that weren't cataloged but it wasn't like a regular you know it's not like the hold steady going out and playing 50 shows uh, <laughs> right. you know across the country over the course of a year no and i think those all sound like one-offs the ones they did and i, I thought that that lounge acts one i think was a was like a showcase for um, Drag City Records. Um, that would make sense, yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, so, uh, but at the same time, like, when you think about Actual Air, the publisher, the, the poetry book that was published later, I think in 99. Yeah. Um, you know, I was reading it, sold 20,000 copies, which means, you know, as far as a poetry book, that's like... That's a... Bram <laughs> it's like Brampton, Brampton comes alive, you know? That's like... <laughs> That's as big as they get. That's Star Wars. Uh, uh, so uh, he must have known he had an audience, you know? I mean, there was people like me that were hanging on every word. There certainly were. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, you wonder, I wonder at least, like, you know, if he, had, if he, had, if he had been just more, you know, uh, out there in general, you know, willing to just do even like a 10-day tour or something and just like seeing people over the years, if that had, that would have done something different for him you know it's it's sure. you don't even want to do any sort of retroactive armchair psychoanalysis but um it's it's unique to me thinking about just every rock band that i've ever listened to and ever loved every you know musician in general like the live performance has been such a that's that's sure that's just as much of it as the records if not more so in many cases um i don't know
number 18. Yeah, this is one of the <laughs> instrumentals that we were sort of talking about, you know, that's like a very strange, you know, thing to um, include. One of the, I was noticing, there was this sort of, you know, going back to that 1994-ish indie aesthetic, It there was a lot of like... Um, you know, outdated technology and like, you know, thrift store scores. Like I think sure. there's like a keyboard in this that found, sounds like, you know, dated in some way. It's like kind of like a, a, you know, crappy robot or something like that, <laughs> that, uh, that, that I feel like was part of, uh, part of the aesthetic. Um, you know, I'm thinking about things like the grifters or even pavement early, you know, um, that sort of lo-fi home recording with, weird stuff weird sounds in there um that you found you know some casio keyboard that you found in the garbage that kind of thing right so there, there's like a that that, that that really kind of this song more than the others puts me back to that era and it is like does that have that um early mid 90s indie rock influence out front Absolutely, yeah. Evocative. Uh, it's yeah. got a strong uh, scent of <laughs> 1993 indie, yeah. indie rock music. Yeah. Um, the Moon is the number 18. I've, I've always loved that. I don't know what that is. Yeah, who fucking knows, you know? But giving, giving this song, quote-unquote song, instrumental, whatever, um, such a obtuse title, right? Like, that feels so effortlessly, like, essentially David, uh, you know, pairing that kind of... Um, ugly scronking sound with this kind of beautiful but very mysterious very obscure t- sort of title there yeah. um there's an element of poetry you know a lyricism just in in that in that match it feels like a 70 sci-fi thing like a uh, title and as does the sort of you know some of the it almost feels like a little bit of a soundtrack with absolutely that, yeah like, with the feedback um, and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but we can't overanalyze this one too much because there's not <laughs> too much to overanalyze. Um, but that brings us to uh, the uh, song you were mentioning earlier, advice to advice to a young Craig Finn, advice to the graduate. <laughs> so you got no friends and you wander through the night And now you watch the sunrise through a rifle sight Well, don't believe in people who say Advice to the graduate. You know, I, this one is just, this is my favorite, by the way, of the, of the record. And, and probably my favorite Silver Juice song ever. And because wow. it, it hit with that um, uh, gravitas in where I was in my life. Advice to the graduate. It's, you know, it's, 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 um, it reminds you of the, the um the film the graduate right yeah like you absolutely. know where, where dustin hoffman is, keeps getting advice from his parents friends and it's all kind of and that's how i felt in my life i really related even many years later to that film because i you know like i don't know i was going to like interviews that like you know my dad helped me get to try to figure out if i could get a job but i didn't really know what i wanted to do but i, yeah. I, I wanted to be in a band but i was drinking beer with my friends at night and going to see going to see indie rock and, and it was all just, but it was, you know, there's a lot of 
a lot of questions looming. And, and you know, I, I admittedly hadn't done enough thinking about postgraduate while I was actually in school. Um, so it kind of snuck up on me. <laughs> I don't um, think you're the first one to find themselves yeah. in that situation. Well, well, I was part of that great American tradition. Um, and yeah. so I was sort of like scared and reeling a little bit, but trying to get on with it and, meet, and meeting some cool people that I'm still friends with now. So it wasn't all washed, but I think my emotional state was a little touchy and advice to the graduate really kind of um uh hit that and you know the the thing of <laughs> that was listening this morning and i was you know the the ash in your shoes sleep mm. on your back and ash yeah. in your shoes ashing there was a lot of cigarettes in my, my well, not just in my life but like in um the people around me. There was a lot sure. of smoking and a lot of cigs inside. Um, it, smoking in a way that you just, I can't fathom anymore, you know, but like, <laughs> but like that was, you know, and, and smoking, you'd go to a show like in a packed bar and everyone would smoke. You Everyone's know, it was blasting, like, blasting darts yeah, all night. Yeah. Right? And, and like to be like, like honestly in the Minneapolis indie rock scene where I was living, I would say 90% of the people were smoking cigs at a show, you know, like now maybe not all at once, but like it was, if you can't beat them, join them. That sounds thing. like another world. Like, Talk about like, you know, the fucking David pulling a Carlton cigarettes ad phrase from another like that. Just people inside a show lighten up. That sounds like another planet to me at this point. I don't think you can, it's weird. We're really detached from how much smoking was going on. <laughs> and uh, and and I remember so I had the it, that ash in your shoes uh, reminded me of two people I knew around then around that time. The first was someone in college that I knew that would uh, he would ash. Uh, uses you know he smoke a cigarette and ash under the his palms, just like knock the ash on his palms and then wipe them on his jeans. Oh man! <laughs> and so he just kind of had like a streak of ash on his upper thigh. Um, uh. And then the other guy didn't like didn't want to like um, deal with si the the butts or like he didn't want to like uh, litter or whatever. Sure. So he would cuff his jeans. Oh no! And when no, no, he no. would put when he would put out his cig, he would put the the butt in the cuff of the jeans, and then he'd like oh, empty man. it out when he'd empty it out when he got home. But which means he would, must have smelled like. But I mean, everyone smelled, smelled like, like cigs. Everyone smelled like cigs back then. I don't think you could tell. Like it was a whole, it was one big <laughs> brotherhood. I don't know. And so uh, I I I think about um, I thought a lot about that and then. The ashing. And the other thing is, um, so advice songs in general, mm. um, I think are a difficult proposition. And uh, when, <laughs> in like 09, I sort of was writing these songs um, with the whole steady that became our record, Heaven is Whenever. And I kind of, Galen and I had gotten this sort of like joking thing about the idea of, of um, what we called a cosmic philosopher, but it's like a, you know, when you get advice in a rock song, a kind of this homespun, but druggy advice, you know, um, mm. I'm trying to think of uh, uh, Jerry Garcia has, you know, you, uh, um, a few, I'm, tr I'm trying to think, it would be like. Kenny Rogers isn't druggy or anything, but like you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You know, like like sure. these little these little tidbits. Um, and uh, I think Truckin' by uh, Grateful Dead the has Dead. some what a long some of those. Yeah, it's been. yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, sometimes you know you get 
shown the light in the strangest places if you look at it right that's cosmic philosopher you know so sure i kind of had this joke in my mind as i sat down and to write the lyrics to that record of imparting advice and um the cosmic philosopher from a different voice because i was at the time like kind of obsessed with uh uh our fifth record so i thought it like i was overly obsessed with like what does one need to do with a fifth record mm. you're sort of an elder statesman at that point <laughs> so now he also spin this like bullshit advice anyways i thought it was really funny but like we had a really hard time interpersonally making the record so the record does not sound very joyful and the the sort of juxtaposition of the advice and kind of the flat vibe just makes it like really hard to listen to now. Like it's, it's just sort of like it didn't, con- I don't, it's, it didn't connect because it's not, it's like on paper. I think it's my, one of our fun, it's our funniest record maybe, but it, it doesn't connect all of which is to say, I know <laughs> this is a tangent that it, writing an advice song is like, really difficult difficult i think you you sound hectoring or something you know like take it from me man um <laughs> but but i think david here is able to like lean into it so hard that it becomes a, not nonsensical but you, you you know it's 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 um it's heightened to the point where you experience it differently than someone telling you what to do sure yeah, I've never even I've never even really like conceived of the concept of like an advice song like that being like a subgenre of songwriting, but you're totally right. Like that is oh. very much like a, a trope in in I mean, I guess like you can't always get what you want, right? Like that's right. maybe the 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 prototypical advice song at the end of the day. I got to think about Here's that a bit more. Yeah, I mean, we, we there's another yeah, I mean uh, a lot of it can be, can be, you know, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. That's <laughs> like, it's, it's a lot of it can, a lot of things can be like, he's telling you how to do it, you know? And, and like, um, you know, he's imparting the advice, the wisdom he's learned on the road, uh, to you, the cosmic philosopher. But I, I think, um, this one, this one comes off much sweeter and, you know, Malcolmus was Pavement was really um I mean they they got even bigger of course but Crooked Range just seemed like you know now he had kind of a hit with Cut Your Hair right and for him to show up at the end of though I know I got a lot of hope for yeah you know like it really kind of breaks through um like a dawn or something at the end yeah at the end of the song there's almost like this you know another voice coming in another melody that really like brings it somewhere um you know, and good morning to the new world. So, uh, totally. Um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a great, great moment. Thematically, uh, um, resonant him coming in. You, you know, you don't think of, I, I don't think of at least like Malcolmist is typically having like a classically beautiful voice or whatever, you know, it's, it's pavement. Yeah. It's, he, he sounds like Malcolmist, but when he's like counterposed against David, who's just got like the most sonorous, drawl you know in a beautiful way i only mean that with positive uh you know vibes um he almost kind of comes in in this like backup singer you know uh beautification role here especially with lyrics like that good morning to the new world it's yeah it's uh it's a really fascinating kind of interplay you know between the two of them yeah yeah it's it's a sweetener It, it sweetens it totally um that one verse also so you've got no friends, and you wander through the night, and now you watch the sunrise through a rifle sight. Don't believe in people who say it's all been done. They have time to talk because their races run. That one is always that kills me every time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, 
the inclusion of the rifle there is almost in my mind like like kind of what I'm talking about when he kind of speaks about America. There's there's a ruralness to that um, that again um, be, uh, goes against what you know some of the indie rock tropes of the time. It's not uh, he seems to be comfortable in rural atmospheres as well as as city. Absolutely. Maybe even more comfortable in the uh, rural circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and we get tied to the oceans, which so, is, uh, well, what do you got? As I listen to this whole record, um, one of my other observations about it was that I heard more, and this and this may be related to our previous conversations, but I heard more Lou Reed and more Velvet Underground in this record than I had heard than I had heard uh, previously um, by paying attention to it um, intensely for the past few days. And this is one of the songs tied to the ocean. See, I, to me, that sounds like a velvet underground song title. And, you know, I mean, I think I could hear this on the velvet underground three as performed by them or sure. you know, even, even loaded. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a, a simple song, but, uh, um, and I couldn't really, I've never, he mentions chuckers. Yeah, a million um, chuckers never felt wrong. Tied to the oceans, a million chuckers never felt wrong. This one is a little more coded than um, than certainly his later work. Or you know, I, I don't, I, I can't make as much immediate sense out of it. It seems sure. more impressionistic, and I don't even know what a chucker is. I looked up in case there was something I was missing, and it said someone who throws things. Yeah, you chucks know? something. Chucks I guess, something. I guess right? <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I guess, aren't we all chuckers then? Anyone who throws? Um, I don't know. But uh, there, there was that, that sort of do, 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 that, totally. that kind of reminded me of the VU stuff, you know? I see that now. You're totally yeah. right. Yeah. I never made that connection before. That's so funny. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I've never really thought of him as having like influences that deep, like David having influences that deep in the history of rock music or if he does you know i'm thinking of it more of him being influenced by you know uh like johnny paycheck or something you know the country country western acts that he loves and i i don't know the answer to this but i wonder how much i wonder if country became was always a thing do we know was country always a thing for him or was it more a post nashville move you know i don't know i i would i would i would guess yes uh because he grew up in texas you know um and uh and then went to virginia and you know just seemed to sort of exist in worlds where that was kind of like the air you breathe right like you don't mm. even realize it it's just like a fish in water um and so you hear that kind of stuff and you just have a natural kind of inclination towards it um, and then lo and behold, he gets to New York city or Hoboken or wherever, you know, post-college in the early nineties. And it turns out that none of those fucking guys have been listening to any of that shit right, ever. Right. Uh, and that's where the culture class comes in. But, um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I don't, honestly it could, could well be totally wrong about that. Yeah. I have, I have no idea. Um, 
I mean, although you know, I, it, my guess is you're right. I, I mean, my guess is you're totally right that he, that country music was was part of his life. Whether it was a uh, uh, an obsessive part of his life, I don't know. I think in in any case, it it was something. It seems to me like it would have been something that he was kind of like defiant about, like proud of, mm-hmm. right, and and not ashamed of in the way that like. Um, I don't know, 15 years ago, people would have been embarrassed to say like, oh, I listen to pop music, right? I, right. I think that the new Beyonce record is great. Obviously, that's, you know, the complete, the tables have completely turned on that. Yeah. Now that's oh, yeah, that's yeah. the stuff that is uh, is most critically lauded in general. Um, but uh, David, you know, might have been a, what's the what's the country music term for a poptimist, right? Whatever that is, that's what, that's what David was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. There should be a name for that if there isn't. And then we got uh, Pan American Blues after Tide of the Oceans. And this is where I think... To me, like if this record starts to become a pavement record to any extent, like I think this one really kind of sounds like something that might have come off of Slant and Enchanted or, or Crooked Rain. Yeah, definitely like, or, you know, early seven inches pavement that like, da, 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 da. yeah, like it's, it's that shambolic and it's like, it almost feels like there's, they're um, maybe making it up as they go along. You yeah, know? no, like, totally. Like, um, and, and, you know, this, uh, one thing I learned, so I, I, I saw that it says um, uh, Limehouse Pratt um, in the lyrics. Mm. I was making notes, and I, I had a suspicion. So a couple of years ago, I think it was, I want to, uh, it was either, it was in early, it's coming right up, it's in early January. Mm. Uh, I can't remember, I believe it was David's birthday. Um there was a tribute to him at Union Pool in Brooklyn, and sure. uh, I they, they and I I know Matt Hunter who um played on the second record, The Natural Bridge. Sure, um, he's my neighbor. He's my neighbor here, so he asked me to if I do it, and I went down. and The guy who was kind of really putting together was a guy named Gate Pratt, who was um one of David's friends from Virginia, I believe. Oh wow! And um and so I looked it up, and Limehouse Pratt um is indeed. Uh, a reference to Gate, uh, who is now an architect, uh, and it looks like his company is called Limehouse. So, really? Uh, yeah. So there's a real uh, a, um, personal shout out. Um, and I, I I heard someone say recently, it was Jason Isbell, but uh, that 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 songs like kind of are for three different areas. And one mm. is everyone, right? You know, it's like everyone who um, who hears the song. That's group one. Group sure. two is is you know um, everyone who kind of understands some of the like some references. So if you knew um, what uh, I don't know. The painted ladies in this song are, are, are butterflies. So if you knew that, you knew what that meant. It it you're in the second group because these kind there's kind of like you're getting some of the inside. Um, and the third is 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 like one person. 
you know, mm. like, like, like this is my very specific memory with you. And so I feel like Limehouse Pratt, uh, is, is, uh, Really reaching out to touch one person, you know? See, yeah, I mean, that absolutely seems like it. Um, that's interesting. I, you know, I've never really thought of him writing this stuff with, like, specific individual people in my Like, to the extent that he does, I've always thought him, you know, the specific individual person that he has in mind is himself, right? It comes from, from yeah. him. But, like, writing to another person in his world, you know, very insular world, um, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about some, that. Some of the some of these songs, um, this one included, feel like maybe they could have been collage-ish as yeah. far as the construction of them. And, you know, in the sense that, like, you know, one lyric kind of, uh, they don't necessarily have much narrative. They, they Leads kinda, to the know, next, yeah. Yeah, so, like, you wonder if he maybe wrote these lines and started moving them around since, you know, seeing what... Uh, I've heard Nick Cave talk about that, moving lines around and and, and seeing what vibrates together. Sure. And um, it, it feels like, you know, and the other thing is there's going to be a truce. There's going to be a truce. Mm. That, like, there's a lot of battle imagery in David's totally. work, you know, and, and, and maybe Civil War imagery and, you know, like this idea of, uh, you know, uh, soldiers and, and, and people um, maybe in battles that are, that are, you know, antiquated. Um, um, but yeah, uh, this one feels, it feels very pavement and it feels because of that Pratt thing that I, um, mentioned, it feels kind of insidery to me. That makes sense. Absolutely. It almost seems like the ability to move things around and see what vibrates next to one another, the way, you know, to quote Nick Cave, um, is something that you like that's either a skill you develop over time or it's something that like you kind of go the complete opposite direction mm -hmm. of uh, mm -hmm. uh, eventually. And whereas songs on Starlight Walker, I think, and, and Pan American Blues is a great example, and Tied to the Oceans, I think, is another one. You know, these two in particular are just kind of like, it seems like it's maybe a scrap of paper next to another scrap of paper next to another scrap of paper yeah. by the time you get to Suffering Jukebox on Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea. Um, or even San Francisco, B.C., you know, one of these big, long, um, shaggy dog story tales that he would uh, uh, go on to write towards the end of his Silver Jews career. Like, those seem so um, labored over, I would say. And not, and not in, a, in, not in a, um, a bad way. Not, not that it, like, it, it seems like he's trying too hard kind of way, but just, like, everything is in its right place. Like, it could only ever be right there. Um, and it's not like a... Mad Libs approach to songwriting construction, which is maybe a uh, you know the, not the the kindest way to describe that, but you know what I mean. I want. I wonder what it, some some of this progression we're talking about about like wanting to be direct and maybe more considered comes from like you know the process of making records. Meaning like the first one you make, it's a little bit wow. We get to make a record. Let's get our friends together. Let's put our you know, a track of us laughing, you know, et cetera. Let's, let's, let's do some inside stuff. And then by your, I don't know, sixth record, you're like, this thing doesn't have to exist. <laughs> and, 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 and I better, I, I'm putting some pressure on myself to make it sort of worth everyone's time, you know, right. um, where I don't know. I think it's like, you're, you're just kind of, 
you might in your first record. I certainly was entertained by the idea that I was making a record. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Ed, you you start no, I guess saying no one starts making records because they want people to listen to them. That's probably not true. But like, you know, if you're doing it right, you're getting into the game. You're starting to make a record because you want to make a record and because you know yeah. you're with a group of people who also want to make a record and you're kind of locked in together. And if you sell. 10 copies, you know, if, if 10 people listen to it, that's all water under the bridge. You know, the record sure. still exists. It's there for you. And then you're right at a certain point for, you know, acts that are lucky enough um, to and talented enough, obviously, to um, uh, get beyond that stage. You're making the record for yourself and your friends and whoever, but also as a like a commercial object, right? Like yeah. something that someone is investing money into, something that is supposed to be sold to consumers. Um, and so that, that's got to feed back on the creation process, you know, the songwriting process in some way, I would imagine. There's a huge step that I think artists go through, which maybe doesn't get talked about as in, in, in very simple terms, but you know, I, I remember in my own life, the moment kind of where people started coming to the shows and you know, they weren't your friends from work. They didn't want to hang out after. They didn't want to go to the party after. They 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 just wanted to pay their seven dollars and see the show. Seven dollars, you know, or whatever it was. You know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm old, but you know, uh, but like you know, like and wanted nothing more from you than your performance. Sure. Um, and uh, because they didn't know you on any other level, but it, but and they were fine with that. Um, and that uh. That's when you start to have actual fans, right? An, an audience. Um, and and I guess that this may have existed, this record's creation may have existed a little bit before um, they had the creation, you know, like like that they was released with some audience, but maybe certainly not what it was going to become. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the success of this record was kind of just based on the fact that Drag City picked it up. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, Drag City had, uh, you know, and still does have, you know, a, a degree of cachet in this world. Uh, and then you can assume that anything that's coming out through Drag City is going to have, you know, there, there's a reason that Drag City is like yeah. putting their name to it. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it wasn't like um, it, it wasn't like a, a, a well-known or hotly. It wasn't like the fucking first Strokes record or something. Right. right? It wasn't right. like a hotly anticipated debut LP. Yeah, and it, I mean, it drafted a lot of Pavement success, too. I mean, Pavement was really, I mean, in the, what, it, six roughly months after releasing Crooked Rain, things were things were going well. Totally. You know? So it was Yeah, it they was played, cool. they, they were on Letterman doing Cut Your Hair around this mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. That's so yeah. weird to, like, it's, it's I, I almost can't hold those, you know, ideas in my mind uh, simultaneously that that is what Pavement was doing, and then we've got this, you know, shambolic tossed yeah. off beautiful little miracle diamond of a record but feels so you know so um naive almost you know and and kind of true and and pure in, in a sense yeah cut your hair was a was a hit you know i mean like i remember i would listen there was some alternative radio i'd listen to and they'd play it all the time and and even i remember watching it on mtv i think it might have been in the like you know the alternative program but but it was it was connecting on a big You still level. got cut your hair on mtv that's you know, that's a whole other world <laughs> yeah right right
Uh, did did uh, Hold Saver get any? Uh, I guess MTV was dead by the time you guys. Yeah, really, dead. But VH1 was kind of still around, though, right? Yeah, I never was on VH1. We made videos. I don't. I. I. Um. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, we were never on. Uh, we never interfaced with MTV on on that level. Yeah. There was a great. Um, there was a great. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. Um, Meet me in the bathroom, the film version. Yeah. Oh, no, I, you, I the I read the book, but I haven't seen the movie. Uh, okay. Yeah. So they um no the mo- in the movie there's a scene where um Courtney Love is in the TRL house. Or is that what it's called? It was like in Times Square. <laughs> yeah. Well, where Carson and, Daly would broadcast yeah. from and stuff. Yeah. And then the Strokes were up there with her, but one of them was so hungover he was sleeping. <laughs> Uh, and it was like, wow, MTV, that was crazy. Like, they had a, one of the strokes sleeping on live television. Incredible. A- and um, that's something, it, again, that's kind of like the smoking in bars. That's something that's <laughs> hard, to, hard to, you know, put your, put your finger on. Oh, what a world we had. Yeah. Uh, it's better in some ways, worse in others, but certainly different. Yeah, the no, the no smoking in bars is like... Uh, a definite improvement and and to bring it back to um the home of david berman nashville like in in 2014 the hold steady went 2013 the hold steady went down to make a, a record down there and i was really excited to hang out until i got outside and this is 2013 and then i first night i went out and everyone was smoking in the bars smoking in like, bar still yeah i'm not that into this so. <laughs> Everyone's walking around with uh, with uh, cigarette butts in their jean cuffs. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what. I I and uh, the recent I, I went to Key West like a couple years ago, and I would say that like um, I think I tweeted this, but if Jimmy Buffett told the truth, he'd talk a lot more about smoking because <laughs> like the smoking bars there too, and it's fucking nuts. <laughs> leathery uh retirees in their uh aloha shirts and their khakis just packs marlboro hundreds sitting on the table long long ashes long ashes like hang droopy ashes beautiful what a world um new orleans everybody smoke well you can't say that my soul has died away south of the united states you know they're on the gulf uh this is another one of my favorites uh yeah i love this song and that and that line always gets me there's a house in new orleans not the one you've heard about i'm talking about another house which you know seems like a a pretty clear reference to the house of the rising sun right um you know which is one of the foundational texts of rock music there um I don't know that that as as a music nerd, record nerd, history nerd, you know, someone who is trying to draw, you know, a, a red string plot line from the very beginning to the very end, and see how all these things connect and come up with some big crazy map. David seeming to like reference House of the Rising Sun in here uh, from the beginning. I, I, I'm very in tune with that kind of approach to songwriting. I would say, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's like it's a knowing nod, um, and he sort of he's I think playing with the sort of you know like like the uh, the meta ness of it really like because the, then then he, we're trapped inside the song is yep. what he get to, and he's saying like you know we all know this stuff so we're making a song about a song and piling it on top and it's um, 
you know, that this uh, very knowing look um, that he's kind of given you. The other thing that I love about this one is, and I, okay, this is my interpretation. So I, you know, I, I can't guarantee that this is, I'm not the guy giving advice here. I'm just <laughs> saying that I, I think what I've always heard or what I've always, no, what I've always um, imagined is when he says alpha, delta, gamma, mm. everybody smoked. Everybody smoked. That's actually very apropos for our conversation. Cigarettes but, um, coming right back. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I always assumed it was smoke and weed, but um on that on this one, but I don't know. But alpha, delta, gamma, I didn't. I was never in a fraternity, nor did I go to school where there were fraternities, so I don't know everything about fraternities. But I imagined it to be a fraternity, ah. or at least you know a, a nod to um, Greek letters, you know. So I looked it up, and <laughs> it's. It's actually, if if this is correct, if this is the correct, uh, and I can't guarantee it, but if it's correct, it's a very beautiful um, reference because it's 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 a fraternity. Um, I think it's a Catholic fraternity, and from my re- three minutes of research in it, into it, it doesn't look entirely successful. Okay, like it 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 it, it could be interpreted by me as to being an unsuccessful or failed fraternity. Um, if you look on the list of where it exists, there are many chapters that have gone inactive. And that may be the case for all I know for fraternities in general, but it's not, it does not to me seem a robust one. And it's not one I knew friends who had were in fraternities and it's not one I'd heard of before. So this may be the worst, um, you know, red herring, but, uh, <laughs> I like to think I, I, I I like to hold that reference to mean that. And an unsuccessful fraternity seems like something David Berman might appreciate. Seems very Berman-esque. Yeah, it's got yeah. a little bit of that hint of like, you know, old world, 19th century, Southern Americana element, but also like, uh, you know, crushing uh, sense of failure and uh, self-consciousness that was d- yeah. distinctly 1990s, early 1990s. Like faded photographs of, you know, fraternity brothers... Behind, you know, and then thinking that the fraternity has ceased to exist, they can't even go back to the house, you know, because <laughs> it's just it's crumbled. the dream The dream has crumbled, and and probably um implied allegations, you know, yeah. uh, you know, like a fraternity seems like when 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 a fraternity goes down, it probably um oftentimes goes down, and I don't know, but maybe not in a um. It doesn't always fade away. There's a reason it might be yeah. uh, going down. Yeah, and they might they might wish that it, it had faded away. It's better to burn out than fade away. That's the kind of advice we're talking about. There you, you know, go. like that's the cosmic philosopher Neil Young. Uh, better to burn out than fade away. Brilliant, uh, brilliant man. Oh, get him out of there! What if it costs twenty five cents to wake up in the morning? Dollar, ten dollars. Pay it. Well, and then we go from uh, New Orleans back to, well, not an instrumental necessarily, but country diary of a subway conductor, like almost kind of like a music concrete type thing, <laughs> right? I, a- I don't even, this, this is another one. This is what I was saying earlier. There, there are clear antecedents on this first record that point directly to where the Silver Jews are going to go in the future. But like this kind of thing right here, a country diary of Subway Conductor, that's really just, 
like a, a wall of studio kind of noise, musically speaking, and then David just kind of uh, stream of consciousness, uh, uh, riffing into the mic. That's 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 an element that is is left here in the past, you know, on this record. I think the again feels like could be a collage. Um, uh, you know, feels like he's, these lines are, are are juxtaposing against each other in, in strange ways. Um, that makes me think he might be just you know reading them randomly or has assembled them somewhat randomly um there's a velvet underground song uh is it the murder mystery murder mystery yes that this that this kind of reminds me of i see that that. you know it's a jumble of words and i think in murder mysteries there are people talking in two different speakers like yeah exactly um, you've got two one vocal in the left channel one and the other vocal in the right channel and they're telling different parts of the story at the same time Yeah, that that this kind of brought to mind that um, I did look up Nuren Spell, um, which is a reference he makes that I did not understand. Which is an old English game, like a like a board game or some sort of um, some sort of game, uh, which is arcane, and uh, I thought was kind of interesting. I had never, I don't know if I had, had even knew what that was he was saying until Nur and words. Spell. Oh yeah, wild Nur and Spell is yeah. an old English game, once popular as a pub game. Man, there's some sort of elaborate torture-looking device that it looks like it's played with. So this guy's like I, I, just the the mind of the man, you know. It's it's such a like it seems like it, that must be so evocative and and essential for him to deliver that kind of statement, right? Like that kind of reference there, and yet it's just complete Greek to. People like uh, me, me. Yeah, Um, I didn't know what that. Yeah, I don't think I. I would hazard to guess. I guess I don't know if English people know that, um, but I would say that a a low percentage of the audience, uh, listening audience, would know what that meant. That yeah, if we're gonna if we're thinking about the song for three different groups of people, that's that's not for the (laughs) everyone group, and that's probably not even for the insiders, uh, knowledge havers group. That's that's for like one person. Yeah, maybe that is. Maybe you want, you know, that that that's that's definitely like maybe there's maybe one other person that that's a little nod to. Yeah. Well, we move from that into Living Waters, which uh I I've always loved this juxtaposition too here. Really kind of just the way this record wraps um because like I hesitate to call this song a pop song, right? Or like a, you know, candy-coated sing-along type thing, but coming where it does on the record after the country diary of a subway conductor and sounding the way it does like it it this one really does sound like if there's a a hit you know quote unquote hit something something for the radio on this record uh this would be the closest thing to it It's the sunniest for sure, and it starts out. People are good, people. You know, like yep. just people are good. It's like like oh, you're like, uh, it's 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 an upbeat um, song, and and it's it's fun, and it's um, it it, it kind of lightens the lightens the mood coming after Country Diary. Again, I I heard VU in this, and um, so it also reminded me of there's this uh, um. 
Josh Kaufman, who's produced a lot of records I've made, um, he has this thing where, you know, he talks about certain backup vocals and, and he's like, you know, should we put some nerd guys in there? And when I first started working, I'm like, what do you mean like nerd, nerd guys? guys? Nerds, you know? And I'm like, he's like, well, you know, she's a femme fatale. <laughs> you know, he's kind, of, he's kind of like a nerd. Because everybody knows <laughs> or a chorus of you know uh obnoxious <laughs> nerds and and i sort of feel like that dot 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 i totally see like, that they're yes. nerd guys you know um so the that's that's a little kaufman uh uh to uh, kaufman inside info for the world i hope that's okay to say but that's what he means when he said that should we throw some nerd guys on there Absolutely. and um i heard some nerd guys in this and you know alongside the whistling and the whistling is is upbeat too i mean that's a there's levity there and um uh it feels like a good time um where we've maybe gone through some darkness with the other other songs previous to it exactly yeah i think the good time element of it like that is key is like it, it, we're letting a little bit of fresh air into this you know um tortured is maybe the wrong word to 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 use cuz it's not it's not like it's a, a depressive kind of listen here but it is a it's a heavy kind of listen you know and and knowing what we know about David and you know kind of just what he was struggling with you know it you imagine that a lot of this came from uh challenging places in his mind and so yeah getting this moment people are good people are bad the backing but the nerd guys the whistling the David and Stephen kind of back and forth this one again sounds relatively close to pavement as, as close as you're going to yeah. get on this record it's um I really value this song I think I love it yeah, and uh, you know the country diary is kind of claustrophobic, and this kind of opens it up. You opens feel like you're you're getting out of the city, and you're 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 in the open. You know, you're you're driving in like more open, open prairie, open sky, open country, um, in a good way. Like it feels breezy in a good way. Totally, you're you're headed to this weird like sepia toned lake that uh, yeah. is on the cover of this record. Yeah, uh, wherever that may be. Uh, and then uh, the last real song on the record, uh, maybe the most accomplished song yeah. um, and uh, the most indicative of what Silver Juice is going to become, I think, without a doubt, uh, Rebel Jew. In the times I dream of Jesus, it's like he's coming through the walls. When I'm working at my desk at night. I hear his footsteps in the hall. You can't believe Yeah, I mean it's interesting to think of this in terms of, you know, what I know, which is only what I read of his um relationship with Judaism um as as his life went on, you know. Um and obviously um it's you know, it's also as as someone who's put Jesus in a few songs. Religion um, is a bit of a theme of here. some of your work, you could say. Yeah, and the idea of you know Jesus as a rebel Jew, you know, um, is 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 beautiful. Actually, um, I think would I think many uh, religious scholars would find that you know like this accurate and beautiful. Um, and there's something when he says, "You can believe me or not believe me." There's something about faith right in that line mm. that's really fascinating to me. Like 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 someone who is secure in their faith and secure in their truth, you know? Totally. You can believe me or not believe me, but I'm not going to spend any time trying to convince you, you know? Take it or leave it. I think that's, 
I think that's like um, almost a statement of pure faith. Because in, in some ways, convincing others of your, uh, of, of your belief in anything seems like you need them to come aboard, you know, to, to, right. to make yourself feel better. So I thought that was pretty great. I thought, I thought that line is, is pretty cool. And the other one that struck me is when he says, you know, um, lie down with, you know, something to lie down with killers, but my baby's not that kind. Mm. And again, this is like one of those words that could mean two different things because you let, don't lie down that killers like, my baby's not the kind, the kind of baby that lies down with killers. She's not that kind of person. But it could also be my baby's not that kind, as in my baby's not that um, loving or or helpful. Sure. Um, and that 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 someone who would be nice enough um, to forgive um, the killers uh, for for their sins. So I don't know. It's a very it's. It's like by far the heaviest song on this record, right? And it's, it's almost, it's almost like it's almost shocking, you know. Um, and again, in 1994, on an indie rock record, Jesus wasn't wasn't on many. Not a not a hot <laughs> not a hot subject, I would imagine. Yeah, no, I mean, like, 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 there's almost like, I mean, people were like, like mortified, or you know, it just didn't seem like the place to discuss that kind of thing. I mean. Jesus was in band names, the Jesus Lizard, Jesus sure. and Mary Chain. But, you know, to to discuss um religion on that level, I don't think, you know, had had been the eighties kind of uh I think will wash that off of the, you know, whatever, you know, the seventies, which which would certainly had um uh Christianity and Judaism appear in, you know, popular Bob Dylan, of course. Sure. Um yeah. So so the, 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 yeah, the, the, it's interesting in this sense. And then there's the, you know, Texas. She is a rebel state. Texas obviously loomed large in uh, as as David Berman's home state, right? Yep. And and, you know, probably a complicated relationship with um it's a big place. There's it's it's there's a lot of things about Texas, right? Um, so I would imagine everyone has a complicated. A lot of people have a complicated relationship with Texas, you know. Um, and and I think uh, it it's it's a fascinating place, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he's he's gonna go on to write uh, another one of the great Texas songs on the very next record, Dallas, which is like yeah, yeah, one of my all time favorite uh, uh, Jews tracks. But that song is so like filled with. Like appreciation and 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 love um, for the place, and yet at the same time, it feels like totally haunted and and just like uh, alienated and and like a the worst place on earth. Um, and it seems like he kind of held those ideas in his mind simultaneously. I think that's the one I did at the tribute, if I remember right. You did, uh, you did Dallas. Dallas, wow. yeah, yeah. I, I um, did. Is there like a YouTube video on that or something? I can maybe I should I should check. Um, it was like really crowded. <laughs> so I, uh, I remember like kind of hanging out on the outside area for most of it just cause I couldn't, I couldn't kind of see. So I didn't see a ton of the performances, but, um, it just cause I, I was, I couldn't, I couldn't handle the, the tightness. Sure. Um, it's right. But, I'm, 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 I just found it right here. Craig Finn, Dallas, Silver Juice, yeah. Union Pool, three years. Great. Right. I'm going to drop, great. I'm going to drop a little bit, a little bit of that in here. Well, through the door, 
So yeah, I mean, uh, this one, this it, it feels almost like the records leading up to this. This is the piece de la resistance, right? Yes. You know? um, I don't know if I use that term right, but that's right. It's, yeah, it's I the, think that I think that 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 flaws. It's not the coup d'état uh, or the or the coup de gras. I mean, it's not the coup de gras because it's not the last song, um, but it's certainly the last, the most emotional and most uh, big song. It's the yeah. biggest song. Yeah, uh, like seems like clearly the most straightforwardly autobiographical and meat on the bone type of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. the the willingness to to start wrestling with your faith already at this moment in time in 1993, which you know he was gonna really, you know, the, like you were saying earlier, right? Like he had a really fractious relationship with his faith over time, and then ultimately came back to his Judaism later in life, uh, and that really kind of informed the last mm-hmm. 10, 15 years of what he was doing as an artist and as an individual, but up until then, you know, uh, kind of rejected it. Um, and then, um, and then, yeah, I mean, these other lines about Texas and, and Michelle, who knows if she is, yeah. uh, if, if she's a real gal or not, but, uh, yeah, it, it, um, I, it, I really like the fact that he just like, he's kind of willing to, to, to pull the mask aside at this point and just, just really on one song in particular on this record. Um, but give us a glimpse of what, uh, what's kind of going on behind those eyes and, uh, why he's going to be such an interesting and brilliant and, um, challenging songwriter to struggle with for the next 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the heaviness of this song is, is what he kind of, starts to um find more often uh in his work you know exactly. uh, the 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 weight of those of this one is is you know in things like the wild kindness or um uh oh, really anything on the purple mountains record um sort of matches this um this 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 big sort of philosophical and spiritual question that he's kind of putting out here Totally, yeah. Very much not a, you know, moving the lines around type of song. This one feels yeah. intentional to me. Uh, love also the pedal steel, uh, just uh, which actually comes from Doug Easley. Uh, I'm looking at the credits right now. Um, but that's such a, you know, obviously you hear pedal steel, you think country music. Uh, but mm-hmm. especially on this record, which sounds so shitty, for lack of a better term, uh, um, in, in many cases, and basic uh, and ugly, that just beautiful swooping natural sounding pedal steel it's like oh wait this has been a country rock record all along this is what this this band is supposed to yeah. sound like yeah that's it that's interesting too because that to kind of wait on that i assume that's the first pedal steel on the record if I, I, think I think it is i think it is yeah so to wait on that and it kind of like it almost arrives as a country rock record or it it, it yeah it, it 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 all feels there's part that it all feels leading up to this um, yeah and, yeah it's and, the, and it's then the, it's like the prestige okay, yeah, this is what it is. There we go. You know, um, the meat. It's the meat of the third act. That's for sure. You know. There you go. And then we uh, we wrap with the silver pageant, which is another <laughs> one of these uh, you know kind of song sketchy type things. But I feel like a fitting a fitting end to this record, to be honest, because it is a. Um, it's fun. It sounds nice, right? It, like it, it. I don't know if this was like if they actually were all hanging out in the studio and they just had the tape running, or if this was a sketch that they did themselves, you know, um, <laughs> deliberately and then married it with the music. But whatever the case, it. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's a really kind of sends you out with a with a a, a warm heart, a, a feeling of grace, and wraps this record. I think on a 
it brings it full circle after the introduction at the beginning, which is this austere, uh, almost downer kind of intro from David and Steven. And now it's like people are hanging. We got a full band. We're having a good time. You know, it sounds like not so bad. Sounds like there's a fireplace in the room, you know, like they're totally. like, uh, I, this also, um, you know, in, in context of 1994, there was, uh, you know, I'd have to look at the exact years, but I feel like there was that sort of lounge culture that was, um, bubbling up stereo lab kind of had a little, I bit totally that. see that. Yeah. There's a little bit of imperfect yeah. tomato ketchup in this. Yeah. And then, and then, then like, uh, there, yeah. So there's this sort of loungy vibe that sort of cocktail lounge thing that I was talking about, like what a hotel bar like looked in the seventies. Like, and I sort of feel like that's the kind of, uh, party vibe that's happening. It feels, it feels, um, it, there's a retroness to it. I guess a little bit like that, that it, it suggests to me, um, um, a party of a different age, maybe. Um, uh, and, and, and it sends, you're right. It sends you out on just a pleasant note, um, uh, that, that everyone, that everyone's having a good time after all. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, you know, you might be able to take for granted if you're talking about a lot yeah. of different bands, you're making a rock record, you're, you're a musician, people think you're brilliant. Of course, you're going to be happy and everything's, you know, easy breezy. Your life is, your life is all, uh, uh bubble gum and candy. But in this case, that's very much not, uh, the story that's going to be told over the following years. So, well, who know, knows how real any of this is, but it, it I want to believe that this is, uh, you know, indicative of something real that was happening back then for him. And I do not know Bob Nastanovich. And I think that one thing that his role as a fan, his role in Pavement and this always felt like, you know, a good, uh, a good, a vibes guy, yes. a vibesman, you know? Um, <laughs> Very much so. Uh, a vibesman that, you know, is like, you know, he's he's playing the percussion, which seemed to me when I first saw Pavement to be like, you know, like um, potentially redundant, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, but I was like, well, they have this percussion guy, but it seems like he's having a really good time and they all seem to like him. So he kind of like seems to be playing the role of, you know, a good times ambassador or something. <laughs> and uh and that that was my impression. I don't know if that's at all the case, um, but that's how I experienced it. And you know that, that I sort of always imagined of him of uh, you know when this party sounds come up that you know he was kind of the the fun guy that was in the room. He's got the lampshade on the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounded like he was kind of there as the the glue guy, right? To use yeah. like a sports metaphor, um, uh, not necessarily your superstar. Uh, but uh, the one that kind of uh, the straw that stirs the drink, uh, the, the yeah. one that's there in the center, the the, the uh, around which all the spokes uh, radiate from. I mean, they had that. That is a very. Um, I can think of several bands that are very successful that have that role. You know, like like um, a vibes guy. You know, and uh, um, I've I we've employed it ourselves in the Hold Steady at times. Sometimes it's a just bringing someone out on tour for a few days that you all know and like um, just to ride in the bus and hang sure. out because it cha- <laughs> it changes it up. It changes up relationships and uh, uh, it, it can be like, yeah, as you say, the straw, straw that stirs the drink. Sometimes there's that one person that, that is the magic adds the glue. Um, I think in the Tim, this year's Timberwolves, it's Mike Conley, you know, like sure. I, I just like you get him on the floor and, and things go better. Um, 
And there's that there, there's people like that in a band too. Absolutely. Yeah. Wolves are having a hell of a season. It's, it's uh, really I am sh- I'm shocked to be honest. <laughs> it was so dire last year and that trade looks so bad, but Gobert is Gobert's, amazing and he's fitting right at him and him and Towns like totally are working together on the floor and then I mean Anthony Edwards looks like the next like yeah. headline superstar. superstar of the league. I, 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 I've bought, I got the league pass for the first time ever. Um, just because I plugged in early and I was like, this team is, I think it's special. Yeah. So I, I can't not watch it now. They're playing the Lakers tonight, actually. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, <laughs> they're probably going to give them a whooping. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, who's playing? Yeah. Who depends. Yeah. But it's 20, they're 23 and seven. I looked at this, the record today. That's yeah. That's wild. And, and, you know, as, as a Lakers fan, uh, you know, um, not necessarily looking forward to the game that's coming up later today as we're speaking, at least. <laughs> Uh, people will know the result by the time this episode comes out. Uh, it's been it's been some ups and downs for me. I'm still kind of just trying to uh, uh, sate myself based off of the you know uh, Disney bubble championship from three years ago, the Mickey Mouse yeah. championship that uh, may or may not actually count. <laughs> Well, only fitting that we end uh, a Silver Jews episode with a little bit of sports chatter. I feel like David yeah. would uh, would appreciate that. Craig, thank you so much for uh, yeah. hopping on. I mean, my pleasure. Can't my think of pleasure. anyone better to talk about a beautiful record uh, with here at the start of the new year, uh, remembering David Berman. Yeah, thanks for having me. 